My book is really about poaching that is driven by commercial, economic demand, and basically human greed. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science in the Public. Ten years ago, most people in the Americas had probably never heard of a pangolin, let alone knew what one looked like. But now, these adorable scaly mammals are an internet meme. Unfortunately, they're also popular for other reasons. People want to eat them and use their scales for medicine. Pangolins have joined elephants, rhinos, and the big cats as poster children for poaching. And we think of poaching as just wrong. It just seems wrong, and like people should just stop doing it. But in fact, it's not that simple, and the world of poaching is both huge and stunningly complex. Here to take us through this incredibly depressing topic is Rachel Neuer, an award-winning freelance reporter whose work has appeared in the New York Times, National Geographic, and more. She's also the author of the new book, Poached, Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking. Poaching is simply illegally hunting. Um, so if you're on a white-tailed deer hunt here in the U.S. during hunting season, you're not poaching. If you're shooting that same deer when it's not hunting season, you are poaching. Um, it's also important to distinguish poaching from bushmeat hunting. While bushmeat hunting can be illegal, um, there's all kinds of ethical issues there in terms of poverty and protein allocation. Poaching also, it's hunting, but that doesn't necessarily mean you kill the animal, right? You can just capture it. Definitely. That's a great point. You don't have to kill the animal. Um, there's also poaching for the pet trade, for example. You want that animal alive so you can sell it to someone who wants to keep it in a cage. And you wrote an entire book about poaching. And you actually came from wildlife conservation. Is that right? What made you move to write a book about this? Uh, yes, it is a meandering story. Like many science journalists. I thought I wanted to be a scientist. I studied biology as an undergraduate, and I went on to do a master's degree in ecology, thinking I want to become a conservationist. I want to study and protect animals for my career. But midway uh, through my degree in ecology, I realized I just wasn't enjoying doing science, and I didn't feel like I was excelling at it or even very good at it. And I realized I could better serve the things I care most about in the world, which includes animals, by writing about them instead of doing science about them. And so you decided to dig into the dark world of poaching, which was interesting because many of us in the West, I mean, including myself before I read this book, would hear about a poacher and kind of assume that they're the classic evil mustache twirling villains (laughs) or, you know, people who are starving or both somehow. And you did actually, the book opens with you speaking to professional poachers. What was that like? What did you learn from them? So I, uh, I went into that experience basically expecting what you described, expecting to meet these awful characters who were just repulsive to me. But uh, like most things in life, it's a lot more nuanced than that. Um, I met a man named Tom Ho. He is a Vietnamese hunter. He lives in a really rural part of the, of the country in a place called Umen in the deep south. It's this vast peat swamp forest. And um, its name in Vietnamese, in Vietnamese means something like deep, dark, and immense. It's just a really foreboding place for most people. And it's also really stricken by poverty. 
So Tom Ho, like most people living in that area, he earns very, very little money. Um, the average is less than $1,000 a year. And um, he also believes that his son was the victim of uh, leftover environmental contamination and poisoning from the U.S. war on Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and all the Agent Orange we dropped. So Uman was heavily bombed. Uh, Tom Ho's son was born with this brain defect. And Tom Ho was in this predicament what do I do to help my son? How can I pay his hospital bills? So he told me he turned to poaching as a way to make more money to pay those bills, which is admirable in a way and very understandable. I mean, I think many of us, if faced with that decision, would choose as he did. However, um, I first met Tom Ho as a student of ecology, and I went back to interview him as a journalist on the record for this book. Now, when I first met Tom Ho, he told me that if his son got better, he would stop poaching. But when I went back to Umen um, about five years later, he was still poaching and his son was better. So I asked him, you know, Tom Ho, what's up with that? You said last time we met that you would stop because you actually said you hate poaching. It's this horrible job. There's so many mosquitoes, leeches, etc. Um, but he simply said, well, I like the money. Um, I can earn, you know, hundreds of dollars from catching a single pangolin. Whereas that'll take me half a year to make if I'm just growing rice. So that's understandable as well. But you can see how easily somebody can be tempted to get into this. Yeah. Um, and I was also interested in kind of learning the outcome of poaching. Because when I think about poaching, I think about elephants and ivory. Um, but a lot of poaching is not focused on food or artistic stuff, but actually on materials for medicine. What are a lot of these animals that you talked about in your book? What are they used for? Gosh, they are used for anything and everything you can imagine. So um, traditional Chinese medicine it dates back around 3,000 years. And there's hundreds of um, animal parts that are called for in various concoctions. Um, some of them are effective as proven through um, scientific trials. Others, there's no scientific evidence whatsoever that they work. However, that really doesn't matter to true believers of traditional um, medicine. It's really more of a faith-based belief system. So if you come to them and say, hey, there's no science showing that rhino horn lowers fevers, for example, they're not going to listen to you. It's the same as if coming to someone and saying, hey, there's no scientific proof for the evidence of God. It's just that's not the way this this stuff is thought about. Um, so, I mean, bear bile, for example, is used for um, for flu and things like that. Rhino horn is used to treat fevers. Pangolin scales are used for lactation. Um, tiger bone wine is used to boost uh, male sexual desire. Just all kinds of things. I was particularly struck by the number of parts, the tiger penis, the tiger bone wine, um, the rhino horn, and a couple of things that were explicitly for male sexual performance. Mm. There's, a, there's a lot of those. <laughs> it is a little conspicuous how much guys seem to um, need things to boost their performance, but mm. that's not for me to comment on, I suppose. <laughs> um, but I was interested, you mentioned it's very much a belief-based system. How do you think these views about this medicine, these traditional medicines, compare to some Western cultures? I mean, we have, for example, in America, there's a lot of people who have a real love of natural remedies, natural foods, organic, that sort of thing. Is it is it at all similar? It's very much a similar mindset. I mean, we have 
very, very lucrative supplement industry, most of which have never been tested scientifically, um, and sometimes they're found to be harmful. It's The difference, however, I would say is what is going into those remedies. Here, it would be herbs, um, basically non-endangered species, and legal things. Um, in places like Vietnam or China, you will have parts of animals that are legally protected by law in those countries and internationally finding their way into these cures. And what else do people want with illegal wildlife products? Gosh, there are all sorts of newfangled uses for wildlife products that are really, really problematic. So the demand for rhino horn uh, was really set off in Vietnam maybe 10 years ago or so. And it wasn't for the traditional use of rhino horn in uh, medicine, which is to uh, lower fevers. It was because um, someone said, and most conservationists think that it was actually a, a smart illegal trafficker who started this rumor, that person, whoever he was, said that rhino horn was a cure for cancer. So people began snatching up rhino horn as a last resort to try to, to treat their ailing and dying relatives. Um, it, of course, did not work. And from there, these rumors morphed even more strangely, and rhino horn became a supposed cure for hangovers. It became even something like a party drug, something you bring along uh, to your rich friend's house or to the bar. And at the end of the night, you grind up some rhino horn, you mix it with water, and you take it as a shot, supposedly to prevent yourself from having a hangover. And also just to show off in front of your friends, like, oh, I'm a powerful guy who can afford this very expensive substance. And it's illegal. So that means I can even flaunt the law. Look at me. What's funny is I interviewed a rhino horn user in Vietnam, and he fit that description in every way. But when I asked him, oh, does it work for treating your hangovers? He said, no, of course it doesn't work. I know it doesn't work. But I'm, he basically said, I'm doing it to be cool. So he knew that it didn't actually work, yet he continued to do it just for the, the image gains. And what I found was interesting was that in the United States, Attitudes toward wildlife products, and not just the U.S., but also um, Europe and Canada, attitudes toward wildlife products have changed really very drastically from even 60 years ago. Um, you know, nowadays, for example, most people would not be caught dead wearing ivory jewelry. Um, it's a very different attitude. Do you know what changed our attitudes toward um, wildlife products? Yes, it's a good question. Um, the largely Western mentality of um, animal welfare and advocacy did develop 50, 60 years ago. And it was largely enabled by, well, first of all, people having enough money and bandwidth in their lives to care. So Tom Ho, the Vietnamese hunter I mentioned, just he can't afford to care about animals right now. He's just trying to get by and make a living. He, he can only care about his immediate family. He doesn't have the energy to extend to animals right now. That makes sense to me. Um, and the other thing that fueled this in the West, especially, is new scientific studies and understanding about the depth of intelligence, of feeling many animals possess. So kind of understanding more about, about them. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and the other thing about Asian perceptions of animals, there's a really strong-rooted cultural belief in places like China and Vietnam that animals are basically put on the planet to serve people. Um, they're there for us to exploit, to use how we will, and to benefit ourselves. 
So you mentioned that we kind of had this as we, our standard of living went up and as um, we kind of began to see animals as, you know, feeling creatures that changed our, our values toward poaching. Does that also work in countries where poaching is practiced? Yeah, definitely. I mean, many, many of the people I interviewed for this book are devoted residents of these countries. Um, some of the leading efforts to combat illegal wildlife trade in Vietnam are being led by grassroots Vietnamese organizations. Um, likewise, Kenya, for example, made the decision on its own in, um, I believe it was 1979, around that time, to ban all hunting, including trophy hunting in its country, uh, because they said, no, we want our wildlife alive. Um, so it, it's not just Western. Many of these things are carried about out by devoted, passionate individuals in the places where poaching is taking place. But there are still these people who, you know, use rhino horn, even though it doesn't work because they think it's cool. What works to change minds there? Is Are there programs or ideas that we know work? So this is such a complex question. And it's really the million dollar question because um, there's a, a slogan that a group called Wild Aid has. It's um, when the demand stops, the killing will too. And that's really true. The reason there is poaching is because there is a market for the animals that are being poached. If people stop buying them, people would stop poaching. Um, how to do that, though, is really, really tricky because, as you touched on before, illegal wildlife trade is this immense contraband industry. It isn't one thing. Um, there's people who want it for jewelry. There's people who want it for medicine, people who want it to show off, people who want to eat wild meat, all sorts of things. So you need different demand reduction campaigns targeting these different user groups, depending on what will work for them. And that really requires a lot of research and um, also not imposing our cultural views that we immediately assume might work. So one thing that we know does not work, for example, is putting up a big cuddly poster of a rhino and saying, like, please don't hurt me. That's just not going to resonate with people like the rhino horn user I interviewed in Hanoi. Um, there has been efforts underway in China and Vietnam to reduce demand. Um, the, the issue with a lot of these campaigns is there's no baseline data. So you start a campaign not really knowing where things stand. And then it seems like things change, but it's hard to really compare how it changed from before because you don't know how it was before. That's a big problem. Um, the other problem is it's really hard to study or to measure whether your poster of, for example, Leonardo DiCaprio or Yao Ming, the famous Chinese basketball star, saying, hey, don't order shark fin soup, actually changed people's minds not to order shark fin soup. Or if it was a government directive issued around the same time saying, hey, we discourage shark fin soup eating. Um, so, yes, there's lots of different efforts underway to reduce demand. How effective they are is yet to be seen, and um, it's going to require a lot more effort and studies. And, of course, that's on the reducing demand side. There's also reducing supply. And I realized while I was reading your book that I actually never knew how endangered animals got protected. I think I just kind of assumed that countries just said, okay, we're not going to allow that anymore. <laughs> but there are actually international groups that protect endangered species. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the acronym is C-I-T-E-S. It is pronounced CITES. Um, and could you tell us what that is and how exactly it works? 
Yes. CITES stands for the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora. Um, CITES so they didn't was put the seven- wild fauna and flora in the yeah, acronym. Yeah, they were like, okay, we've got enough of an acronym. <laughs> um, exactly. Um, I always forget that ending. Anyway, CITES was set up um, in the 70s, I believe, by the United Nations. And it was brought about because people realized, hey, uh, trade of international trade of animals and plants is a booming, booming bu- business, billions of dollars a year. And at the same time, all these animal populations are going down, species are going extinct, tigers are disappearing, etc. We need a way to regulate this to make sure that this trade is done in a sustainable way, in a scientifically backed way that is not going to detrimentally impact animal populations. So CITES um, is a group of countries. Uh, there's over 180 countries now signed on. And these country representatives get together uh, once every couple of years and they vote on which species to uh, to uplist. That's the term in CITES to give it more protection, um, which ones to downlist, things like that. So um, a great example of how CITES has helped set regulations internationally is elephants. Um, many people know that ivory was banned from commercial international trade in 1989. In fact, it wasn't that ivory was banned from trade by CITES. It was that the CITES members voted to uplist African elephants to the highest priority listing, which meant they were effectively banned all their products from commercial trade. Um, So that's the way the world regulates international trade of wildlife. Domestic trade is a whole different beast. Um, CITES doesn't have any say so over that. Um, but a lot of countries, including the U.S., um, China, Vietnam, et cetera, do have strong wildlife laws protecting trade of species within their borders. Okay. And these are international agreements. They uplist things and they say, okay, this is really protected. But that doesn't really, that's not how animal protection takes shape on the ground. So like what happens to like from CITES to a national park in Kenya? Like, what's the, how does that actually affect what happens on the ground to the elephants? Sure. Um, well, CITES is international law. So anyone, any nation that's a signatory to it is bound to follow it. Um, they can't just like say, okay, well, we're going to ignore this part of CITES. Um, and that mandate is then given to border agents who then, if they find ivory, they know immediately, hey, this is banned from by CITES. It's banned from import into our country. We have to seize it. Um, how that then trickles down to a national park is different because, um, again, that's domestic. So if hunting is legal in South Africa, for example, um, someone can pay to hunt a rhino, shoot it, and then um, they can get a special permit to export its horn. Whereas if somebody at a park in Kenya, if that happens, it's completely illegal. So it varies from nation to nation. Yeah, it really, like, if you're talking about things within borders, it really depends on that country's law. I mean, for example, pangolins are illegal to be hunted in Vietnam. Um, Perhaps there are some African nations in which it's not illegal to hunt them. But it would be illegal to, to export those hunted pangolins scales, for example, to Vietnam because pangolins are banned by CITES. It gets really complicated. I know, I know. Like, 
I had such a huge learning curve myself to overcome just to figure all this stuff out. Um, But it's really important to understand if you want to understand how trade works. And a lot of your book focuses specifically, you talked a lot about elephants, but a lot of the book actually focuses on rhinos, um, which are killed for their horns. And I, <laughs> so thing I actually didn't know, you do not have to kill a rhino to get its horn. You can just saw it off and it'll grow back. <laughs> so there are people out there that are actually ranching rhinos to saw off their horns and the rhinos are just getting up and walking away. So if you can get horn, Without killing the rhino, why are people still killing rhinos? Gosh, I yeah, I really wish people would just ranch the horn and be happy with that. Um, there's even a startup in Seattle, for example, that's trying to 3D print um, genetically identical rhino horn. The problem with ranching rhinos or 3D printing rhino horn is that uh, many medis- traditional medicine users and um, men like the one I interviewed who are using rhino horn for hangovers and things... They actually specifically want products from wild animals. They see those animals as having a particular essence and um, a strength and a naturalness and a cleanness and a healthiness that comes from living in the wild, not living in captivity, not being um, synthesized in a lab in Seattle. It's to the point that some rhino horn users in Vietnam, for example, will demand or pay more for a horn that is a quote-unquote wet horn. That means there's parts of flesh still attached to the horn because they don't want rhino that rhino horn that was trimmed off some docile animal living on a, a ranch in South Africa. They want the real deal from the wild. And the other reason poaching is continuing so much is because there's just lots and lots of very poor people living around parks and reserves and ranches in Africa who are going to do anything they can to make a buck. And it's not just a buck. It's a lot of bucks. People pay through the nose for this stuff. Um, one of the things in your book that really floored me was that some poachers are actually disguising elephant ivory as mammoth ivory because it is actually le- like less expensive. The mammoth ivory is actually like less in demand. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Um, one to China, this was a really big deal. Um, they banned all ivory at the beginning of this year, so January 2018. That means it's just it's illegal to sell any ivory now in China, which is a huge deal because China is the epicenter of demand for ivory right now. Um, however, they did not ban mammoth ivory. Uh, so it's pretty easy to pass elephant ivory off as mammoth ivory. Um, so that's one way that illegal trade of ivory can, can, can continue. And mammoth ivory also isn't really a great solution because there are mammoth ivory hunters in Siberia, for example, who are just completely wrecking the environment because they have to uh, basically get a really powerful hose and blow open the tundra with water jets to find ivory. Jeez. And they're, of course, these mammals that they are looking for the ivory, they, they are extinct. They are indeed extinct. Yep. So unless we, it's unless not like farming them as an option. Yeah, exactly. Oh. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a shame. Um, now, you did a ton of travel for this book. You talked to many people on many sides of this issue. Did writing this book change anything about what you think about poaching? Mm, um, gosh, that's a great question. I hate to just be a giant bummer here and like get people down because it's not all doom and gloom. 
But I think I am a little bit more pessimistic coming out of this book project than I was when I began, just because I I understand more clearly how large of an obstacle we have to overcome to stop this this trade. That doesn't mean we can't overcome it. We definitely can. But I'm just like, wow, we've got some work to do. And one of the things that made me realize that is just the absolute impunity with which this trade is carried out in places like Vietnam. So that rhino horn user I mentioned at the um, in Hanoi, I actually met him in a very crowded restaurant, um, trendy, full of Vietnamese clients and tourists. And he brought his rhino horn along to dinner and he took it out in the middle of dinner. And, you know, the server was coming over and everything while we're doing this. And he demonstrated for me how to grind it up. He even offered to let me taste it, which I politely declined. But he could do that uh, knowing that he had nothing to fear. He wasn't going to get reprimanded. No one was going to come in and arrest him or seize his horn. And it was like that for so much of the things I witnessed, um, especially in Asia. You know, ivory and tiger claws openly for, dis- for displayed for sale in Laos, where all those things are illegal. Um, just there's very little control on the ground, and until people actually start enforcing their own laws, um, we're going to have a problem. And do, what do you think? You mentioned, you know, people need to start enforcing their own laws. Is there what is the thing that will make people stop poaching? Is there <laughs> is there a way to make poaching stop? And what do you think it is? And has your opinion on that changed? Did you mm. used to think poaching was easy or something like that? Um, I, I don't think I ever thought it was easy. I always knew, you know, life is complicated and this is no exception. Um, there have been really wonderful case studies that seemed absolutely hopeless, but wound up being one in which poaching was stopped. So, for example, I visited a park in Chad called Zakuma, and uh, Zakuma is just this crazy, exceptional example. Um, there was around 4,000 elephants living there, one of the largest herds left in Central Africa. But poachers on horseback from Sudan started riding in and just gunning these animals down. Everybody thought these elephants are going to die. It's hopeless. Let's just give up on this population. Um, but the government of Chad wasn't willing to do that. They teamed up with a South African conservation group called African Parks. And what African Parks does is they basically take over management of uh, failing national parks from governments in Africa. Um, they have complete control over the uh, on the ground. Um, and they brought in a new management team who just overhauled everything. They got rid of corrupt park rangers. They um, teamed up with community members around the park and got them on board with things. Uh, they built a new airstrip. They stayed in the park all year round instead of leaving during the rainy season. And all together, these actions they took wound up having a really great effect. There's almost no poaching in Zakuma now. The elephants are reproducing once again. It's just this amazing example of how things can succeed with the the right amount of determination and resources. Um, the issue, however, is that elephants in Zakuma will never be safe until the demand stops. So that's the other side of this problem that we really need to, to cut back on. And that can be, okay, through a carrot and a stick approach by punishing people and arresting them when they do buy illegal products or sell them, and also by just changing minds. And 
I was wondering, most of your book, you focus on poaching in Africa and in Asia. Do Western cultures poach? And if so, like, what do they poach? For sure. Um, I mean, here in the US, we have lots of hunting. And if you just Google online, you'll find cases of people hunting out of season or hunting animals that aren't legal to hunt. Um, we also have cases of pet poachers. So uh, endangered reptiles in the Arizona desert, for example, being snatched up by poachers to sell in the pet trade. It's it's not just a phenomenon in Asia and Africa. And you also focused um, almost entirely on mammals. There's a little bit on, on reptiles. Um, but is it mostly mammals that are a poaching problem? Are there, does anybody poach birds? Oh gosh, <laughs> or, definitely. Or bugs? Does anybody poach yeah, bugs? <laughs> that's, that's hilarious because right before you called me, I was working on a story about insect poaching. So great timing. People um, poach yes, bugs. <laughs> people poach insects and spiders. I mean, you name it, there is a market for it. Um, yeah. All like thousands of species are, are poached. Um, it's not just mammals. It's, fish, it's reptiles, it's birds, it's insects, etc. Um, the reason I focused on what I did in this book was really just a question of um, what are the big poster child species that get the attention? And also, what can I actually get done in the amount of time I've been given to write this book and the amount of resources I have to do it? So I really did want to focus on birds, actually. There's a thriving songbird trade in Southeast Asia. Um, songbirds are valued highly for their, their beautiful songs. There's actually songbird singing competitions. And it's just traditional for people in that part of the world to keep a songbird at home. Uh, as a result, though, there's just this tremendous amount of trafficking of songbirds and poaching um, and emptying of forests of these species. And I had originally planned to go to Jakarta, which has the, um, uh, the region's largest bird markets. But at the last minute, the researcher I was going to meet up with um, couldn't come. And I thought, okay, well, I'll scrap that idea. So there were a lot of um, sort of twists and turns in the reporting of this book that either worked out or didn't work out, um, which this book, it's not perfect. It's not exhaustive, but I think it does hit the main points of the trade, even if songbirds aren't specifically mentioned. Well, Rachel, this it is a really great book, though I have to admit it is incredibly depressing. But I did, yeah. I did learn a lot. <laughs> Good. Well, I, I tried to put a lot of cheesy little jokes in there, so I hope it made you chuckle at times. <laughs> well, through the tears, anyway. Oh, lots gosh. Of, lots of tears. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Rachel Neuer and her book Poached, Inside the Dark World of Wildlife Trafficking, we've got information on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Next, we usually think of science as being about finding, identifying, and protecting rare species. But unfortunately, sometimes scientists can put new species in danger just by telling other people where they're at on the internet. I don't know about you all, but when I think about poaching, I think of very 90s style poaching, if you will, videos of people killing elephants and stuff. I don't really think about the role of the internet in poaching, let alone all those cute animal videos and happy species rediscovery stories that we need so much in these difficult times. But here to bust our cute animal bubble is Vincent Nyman, a biologist at Oxford Brookes University in England. Vincent, thank you so much for taking the time for us. Uh, you're welcome. I wanted to start by asking, you're a biologist by training, and I think most people tend to think of biologists as people who study, like, yeast and birds. Why are you studying poaching and social media? 
Ooh, that's a long story. But it, of course, started with me having an interest in animals and plants and forests, just like many other biologists. Um, then I ended up going to Asia, visiting bird markets, where they sell not only birds, but all kinds of other animals. Uh, these animals are all taken from the wild. And I started visiting these markets more and more. And slowly over time, my research moved from uh, the field to essentially the markets. And later from the markets, as in the physical markets, the, the, the mortar and brick markets, to the online markets um, on, on YouTube and Facebook and all kinds of other social media. And I know that I, like many people, I have friends and loved ones, and they send me cute animal videos when I'm stressed out. And I personally have a very soft spot for hedgehogs and any dog that is dressed like a hot dog or a taco. Um, and I never thought that these videos could be bad. They seem like the most innocent videos on the internet. But you are actually concerned about cute viral videos. Why do you worry about them? Well, I'm not so much worried about uh, uh, dogs, domestic dogs, dressing up. Um, I think that's actually quite funny. Um, I'm also not so concerned about uh, uh, most of the hedgehogs. I'm more concerned about um, animals taken from the wild, and they are dressed up or paraded on the shoulders of, of people and uh, um, shown to the wider world. That's partially my concern. Why is that worrisome? Um, it's worrisome because it shows um, animals and species that really should be in the wild as, um, as if they are appropriate to be kept as pets, uh, and many of them are not. And it sort of like uh, creates a desire of a much larger group of people to want one as well. Um, and um, um, if more and more people want to have these, these, these rare and unsuitable wild animals, um, that can cause all kinds of problems with wild populations. And you say they're unsuitable to be kept as pets. When you say, like, unsuitable, what do you mean? Like, are they, are they violent? Are they, why are they unsuitable? Um, I think domestic animals are suitable as pets. That's why they've been domesticated over thousands of, of, of years and hundreds of generations. Um, wild animals, by and large, are not suitable uh, to be kept as pets because they haven't gone through that whole process. Uh, so they would suffer stress. They probably um, have a diet that is very specialized that, that most people can't give them. They have social needs uh, um, that people can't give them. So in that sense, many wild animals are not suitable. That's why they are wild animals. Um, if they were suitable to be kept as pets, we would have domesticated them probably a long, long time ago, just like what we did with dogs and cats and donkeys and horses, etc. Um, and indeed, sometimes it is actually can be dangerous. Uh, uh, some of these animals are dangerous. If you, Some people think it's, for instance, okay to keep a wild primate as a pet. Um, primates can be very dangerous. They're very cute when they're young, but when they grow up, they have very, very large canines. They're wild animals. Um, when they hit puberty, they uh, lash out. Uh, they can be uh, uh, smelly. They can be uh, uh, dangerous to both adults and kids. Um, so I would say stick to domestic animals and don't uh, get yourself a wild pet. And I wanted to talk in particular about a paper that you published in 2013 about a very popular video, which it would not surprise me if most of our listeners have seen it. It's a slow loris video. It's a viral video. It's called Tickling Slow Loris. And it's a person, a person's hands, scritching or tickling a slow loris. And I, I went back and I watched it. 
um, because I, I think I maybe missed it the first time. Um, and if you don't know what the animal is or what its reactions might be like, it's, it's pretty cute, you know? Um, but it is a slow loris, um, getting quote unquote tickled. Why is this a big deal? Um, well, you asked about which, uh, animals are not suitable to be kept as pets. I think the slow loris would be on the top of my list. Uh, yes, it looks cute. Um, it smells horribly, so I think that would be uh, uh, inappropriate to keep it as pets. But also, it's one of the only venomous primates. Actually, it's the only venomous primates. Wow, wait, um, really? It's venomous? It's venomous, yes. Well, um, that's amazing. <laughs> it is amazing, yes. Where is uh, the venom? Uh, in its teeth? or? Uh, it's, it's actually in its uh, saliva, uh, in its brachial oil, which is in a, in a gland uh, just above the elbow. Um, they can mix the saliva and the brachial oil and combined, that works as a, as a venom. Uh, on its own, it, it works as a venom as well. Um, and while it's never been designed to kill people, um, it can. Wow. So, like, what, what are the symptoms? Like, what happens? Does it, does it bite you? And then, like, do you get sick? Like, what, what happens when you get poisoned by a slow loris? <laughs> Which sounds uh, like the it, most it, absurd it, injury. Uh, yes. Uh, um, well, it, it, it depends, of course. It, it, it's uh, just like... When people are bitten by snakes, uh, it doesn't always lead to, to death or to, to uh, destruction. But what can happen with uh, slow loris when, when they bite you, um, a very common symptom would be necrosis, uh, so flesh rot. And that may lead to essentially use, losing a finger or even a hand. Uh, that's a long-term thing. What can also happen is that if you're bitten and you respond especially uh, bad to it, uh, you basically... Uh, get into anaphylactic shock, uh, and that may cause death in the end if you don't get treated, um, and anything in between. So anything from having a pain, very painful bite to uh, uh, you dying uh, uh, can happen when you are bitten by a slow loris. It's not pleasant. Yeah, and of course, these seem rather illegal to own. Um, so what do people end up doing when they do own these animals? How do they, how do they take care of that venom? Um, well, there's two ways of taking care of it. Uh, um, one is you hope for the best and you hope that you will never be bitten. Um, and the other is, um, equally unpleasant is you can basically pull out or clip out, um, uh, uh, some of the teeth. Um, and that makes it uh, less likely that they bite you. Um, it also makes it less likely that the animal actually survives, but that's a secondary point. And so these are, these are not legal to own as pets. <laughs> Um, no. So in, in 2007, all uh, slow loris species, there are about seven or eight species, were put on what is called Appendix 1 of CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Fauna and Flora, uh, which means that all international trade is basically banned. Uh, in each range country where they occur, they occur in uh, South Asia and in Southeast Asia, so Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, uh, Northeast India, uh, in each of the countries where they occur, they are legally protected, so you can't catch them, you can't keep them, um, and that more or less combined means that uh, keeping them uh, is illegal just about everywhere. Um, secondly, they actually don't breed in, in, in captivity, uh, so all the ones we see in trade are indeed wild caught. And you mentioned in the paper when you were writing about this video of the tickled Soloris that actually went viral, um, the people who made the video and posted the video there in Russia, um, and they, they actually got very defensive and they said, you know, this is our, this is our pet. It is legal. Um, do you think it's possible that many 
people who own animals like this do not realize that they have an animal that's illegal? Um, it's possible. Um, it's also possible that they simply uh, ignore the rules. Um, many of us break laws when we don't agree with them, um, like jaywalking. Uh, so perhaps that's how they perceive it. Maybe illegal, but we don't do anything wrong. It's just innocent fun. It's and a nice pet. You became interested in studying not necessarily the video itself or the pet owners, but actually the reactions to the video which is really funny to me because most of us spend our lives pleading with people not to read the comments, but you just went in there and you read all of the comments. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was a bit of a, 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 a bit of an effort. It was, it was over 12,000 comments, um, and we basically coded all the comments, what people said for content, if they were, if they, they, were offended by the video, if they were happy by the video, if they wanted the video, if they thought it was cute, etc., etc. Um, and we, we plotted that over time and see if that sort of like changed over time um, in the light of, 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 of events that happened outside the video. So, for instance, when uh, Wikipedia created a page on the conservation of slow lorises, we could see some, some changes in the comments that people started making in the sense that they were better informed about what slow lorises were. Um, and, um, yeah. And why were you interested in kind of looking at these comments and seeing people's reactions? You mentioned that people started posting kind of conservation style um, comments. Why did you want to find out how people reacted? Um, for two reasons, I think. One is that if someone posts a video like this on, on the Internet and it therefore, therefore introduces a up till then obscure animal to essentially the wider world, um, if as a response to that people want to keep them as pets, that will then create a larger demand for these slow lorises. Um, where there's a demand and it can be fulfilled, uh, um, then what will happen is that more and more lorises will take them from the wild and enter the international illegal pet trade. Uh, so we wanted to study essentially that. Um, and secondly, we want to know whether or not any conservation actions we implement have an effect on, uh, um, on, on the audience we try to reach. So for instance, if, if one creates a Wikipedia page on conservation of a particular species, what you would like to see if that has an impact on how people think about these animals before and after. Or when you give a training in a particular area or to a particular group of people, you want to know whether or not it's effective by comparing before and after. And these comments allowed us to do that. And what did you find? Did it make a difference? Um, what we see is that in, um, in this particular case, uh, more and more people over time became aware of the, let's say, the conservation status and the plight of the slow loris in the wild. So we saw more and more comments to that effect. Uh, we saw also better informed comments in people making uh, uh, very clear statements that are factually correct. Uh, at the same time, we also saw that um, the number of people that actually wanted one as a pet uh, slowly dropped as a, as a proportion of the total number of comments. So that kind of makes me feel good because I think, ah, truth will out, even on the internet. <laughs> um, do we, do you know whether viral videos like these actually increase trade in the illegal pet trade for these animals? Is there evidence that posting of a viral video actually results in more slow lorises being trafficked? Um, I think in, in general, it's, it's difficult to, to pinpoint it to one individual video, but there are many, many of them. Um, so this is, was one of the first ones that came out in, in I think, 2009. Um, we, we have now many, many more of them. So in general, 
the information and the, the, the amount of videos that are out there for slow lorises, but also for other obscure, rare, endangered animals is much, much more now than it was, say, 10 years ago. Um, and you can only want and desire something you know that exists. Um, so I think that may be the answer already. Well, is that if, if, if people are more aware of that, that, that you can have them, um, that may, even if it's a very small proportion of people that want to have them, now they know it's possible, and now they know that other people have them as pets, that may indeed increase the demand. Well, I was thinking of this because people might say they want to own something like Every time I see a picture of a corgi, my immediate response is, I want a corgi, but I still do not own a corgi because I like to remain sane. So how much do you think the internet comments are reflective of people's actual desire and follow through? Um, I, I I can't really answer that, but but I'm also not expecting when a thousand people post a video and saying, or post a comment saying, I want one that all these thousand people want one and will we'll try to get one. Um, but that's not what, what is important. What is important is that if a proportion of them want to have them, um, with a very rare animal like, 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 like a slow loris, um, that could be enough to uh, uh, pose an additional threat to the species. Because they are extremely <coughs> endangered, correct? Um, yes. Uh, 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 so some of them are listed as critically endangered, which is the highest level of uh, uh, threat category that we recognize. So what do you think should be done about videos like this one? Is this, you, you mentioned there are lots and lots of them out there. Is this the sort of thing that like people should not post them? People should not like them? People should not know that the slow loris exists? What, what should happen with these videos? Um, I think that if you, um, if you post videos that clearly are abusive to the animals, um, that are clearly showing animals in unsuitable situations, um, in a sense where it is, 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 can always be perceived as, as tickling as torture, right? So it, it, it can be perceived as, as that. Um, <clears throat> then I think that, um, uh, perhaps these videos should be taken, taken off. Um, and what other, what people can do is if they decide to add comments is perhaps inform the readers and inform the viewers, um, what we actually see. Um, and that is perhaps not all fun and games. And I was also very interested because, you know, this is on social media. It's on, it's on YouTube. Um, and I was very interested in one of your 2018 papers that actually showed that social media is now being used to trade illegal species, which I guess I should have expected. Um, but where do people go? Where do you go online if you want to buy an illegal Asian otter? Um, well, let me say you type in the name of whatever you want. And you add for sale. So you and just then you Google push, it. And then you push enter. That's uh, that's how simple it is. Wow. And you actually, you did this um, for your 2018 paper. How many posts did you end up finding that were trading illegal species? Oh, uh, 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 we find uh, um, hundreds of them on a single day. And that was specifically for otters, right? For, well, in, in general, I can find a hundred uh, uh, easily. If I, if I go behind my computer now... Um, Within probably 10 minutes, I can probably find 100 animals for sale that shouldn't be for sale, that are, are, are protected in the country where they're offered for sale, and many of them are, are, are globally threatened. Um, and all I have to do is, is type in the name, add for sale, and go to the right sites. Um, so it, it, it's everywhere. And do you think, um, how many people own these, these animals? You mentioned like 100 ads a day. That's a lot. Um, yes, uh, 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 there's lots of people on the planet. Lots of people want to have exotic animals. 
um, and uh, um, a lot of it is for sale. Wow, so wildlife, it... people often think that wildlife trade, because that's what, what we're talking about here, that wildlife trade affects a very, very small number of animals or a very, very small number of plants. We often think of, of elephants, we think of ivory, we think of rhino horn, we perhaps think of pangolins these days. Um, if we think of those animals, what is traded per year is perhaps in the thousands maximum. Um, wildlife trade, in reality, if we look at it in a slightly broader sense, and we include things like, uh, um, I don't know, uh, uh, ornamental fish, if we include reptiles, if we include amphibians, if we include smaller mammals, if we include birds, um, it's in the millions and millions a year. It's not a small business. It's not a few people, a few rotten apples that, 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 that do it. It's, it's, it's literally probably millions of people that are involved in the business. Do you think it's global? It's worldwide. It's everywhere. Do you think a lot of people who have, say, ornamental fish probably don't realize? Um, I, I must say that probably uh, uh, many of your listeners, I'm not sure where they're all based, but if they're in Canada or in the US or, or here in the UK, the majority of, of ornamental fish are probably kept to bread, uh, um, many of them in Asia or, or in other parts of the world. Um, that's, that's fine. Um, there's also a small proportion that is wild-caught fish, especially saltwater fish, uh, uh, they're wild-caught. Um, and again, I think we have to be very, very careful if we actually want to have them uh, and if we're not sort of like uh, uh, inadvertently putting additional pressure on already rare populations. And speaking of those those rare populations, you have written a really interesting review on publicizing uh, what are called Lazarus species. And can you talk first about what a Lazarus species is? Okay, a Lazarus species is actually one of the few times we get some good news in conservation. Um, and it is when, when, when we rediscover a species that we thought was extinct. Um, and it happens probably, I don't know, a couple of dozen times a year, depending on what species we are looking for. Um, so perhaps some, some, some birds that were thought to be extinct, 30 years later, people find it again in a remote forest area. Or people thought an entire swamp area was, was, was drained and all the frogs there had disappeared. And it turns out that in some of the little corners of that area, there's still some, some wetlands left and the frogs are there. Um, so these announcements are, are good news. Um, so larger species are essentially a species that has risen from the death. Uh, we thought it was dead, uh, uh, um, but it turned out to be alive and kicking. I actually think of there's a giant stick insect that I think lives off the coast of Australia. <laughs> on this island and that's what i think of when i think of a lazarus species because they found these giant stick insects again <laughs> and everyone was excited yes, uh, about them. Um, and 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 the hula frog is a good example in israel uh, and there are other other examples like it as well and as you mentioned you know it's good news it's like yay we haven't destroyed everything <laughs> and you know scientists want to publish information and say you know hey this species still exists we should conserve it we should come up with a program to, you know, protect their habitat and things like that. Um, but you actually argue in your paper that maybe we shouldn't be publicizing these new, well, not new, these kind of rediscovered species. What are kind of the pros and cons of telling people about these Lazarus species? Um, I think the, the, the main threat, of course, is that if you rediscover uh, a population of these thought to be extinct species, and it turns out to actually be a very small population, um, by announcing the rediscovery, um, some people who actually want to keep it as a pet or want to use parts of that animal um, are drawn to that news as well. Um, so I think if you have very good protective measures in place, perhaps then you can make the announcement. But I think you should have the protective measurements in place first 
before you make the announcements. Protect so, before you announce. So, but you know, scientists also need to publish for their, <laughs> um, for the sake of, for example, the tax dollars that fund their, uh, their work and also because, you know, for their own careers, they need to publish. So what do they need to do when they do need to publish the existence of those species? Say to have a paper to point to when they say we want to get funding to conserve this animal? Um, well, there, there are different ways of looking at it. I think that if you, if you're so dependent on this one paper that you need to publish in order to get your career going, I think you should work a little bit harder and find some other research projects to do at the same time. Uh, publish more rather than less. So I don't think that any academic is totally dependent on publishing the research, the results of, of one single rediscovery. Um, and that doesn't mean you, you can't announce, announce it at all. I think you should announce it at a later date, uh, once proper measures have been, t- have been put in place. Um, or perhaps in some cases, well, just keep, keep quiet. Um, don't announce it. Can you be vague about the location? Um, you can, but you have to be very vague. Um, in a sense that if you, if you are, if you give general indications in what area it is, um, it's relatively easy to figure out for people that have a clear interest in these animals or these plants, um, where it is, uh, by simply traveling to that area and asking around. Um, so I think you have to be fairly vague. It seems kind of, it's, it's extra depressing to me that scientists, you know, might publish, oh, yay, we found this frog that we thought was extinct and it's not, and that's great news, and there are poachers reading the scientific literature <laughs> and setting out to look for these animals. That's, that's hideously depressing. <laughs> Uh, 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 yes, but that's the world we live in. So I think you have to think before you do. And in your paper on Lazarus species, you mentioned specifically there was a Sumatran rhino. So not all these Lazarus species are small. Some of them are rhinos. Um, yep. that was kind of rediscovered. How did that end up working out? Uh, ooh, uh, um, um, so Sumatran rhinos occur over la- or used to occur over a large part of Southeast Asia. So not just on the islands of Sumatra. Um, and we are talking about a population of Sumatran rhinos on the Indonesian part of the island of Borneo. Um, and we thought for about 30, 40 years that all these populations had gone extinct in uh, Indonesian Borneo. And they became extinct not because there was no suitable forest left. Uh, they became extinct because they were hunted to extinction because of their horn uh, and the rhino horn trait. And what happened a few years ago is that uh, uh, um, signs of rhinos were seen in, in, in a province in Indonesian Borneo, and the organization in, involved, which was WWF Indonesia, um, the first thing they did, or one of the first things they did, was they announced it to the world that they had rediscovered this uh, Sumatran rhino in Indonesian Borneo. Um, a few months later, once they had obtained uh, um, video footage through camera traps of, of, of this rhino, um, they made another announcement, again reiterating that they had rediscovered this species in Indonesian Borneo. Um, what happened was, after the second announcement, was that uh, um, the first poachers um, started coming into the area to try and, and, and find them. Um, Did so, the population stand a chance? Um, well, uh, um, Let's say they live in the rainforest in Borneo. Um, it's very difficult to physically protect these, these, these Sumatran rhinos that run through the rainforest. Um, 
So in order to set up a, an effective system of protecting them with patrolling, I think it's going to be a nightmare or is a nightmare, very difficult. Um, and you have to do it 24-7 and 365 days of the year. Uh, and that will be very, very expensive and very, very complex to pull that off. Um, so You don't sound optimistic. Um, no, um, I'm not. Ouch. So people are going to see articles about new and rediscovered species. Scientists are going to publish them. Journalists are going to write about them. Um, what do you think people should do about that? What should we do about the cute animal videos and you know, seeing these articles about rediscovered species? Um, I think th those people that actually rediscover species, I think they really, really should think hard whether or not they should announce it as soon as possible. I think people always want to, do, to, to get it out there as soon as possible because they are afraid of being uh, uh, um, scooped by others. Um, I think you should think a little bit harder and perhaps invest more in effective protection of, of these animals or perhaps doing a bit more research to figure out how many of them are actually left. Um, so that's, I think, from the, the, the scientist and, and the conservationist part, um, you don't necessarily have to immediately announce everything uh, that you rediscover. Um, just take a few steps back, think about it a bit harder, consult some other people, um, and, and then make the right decision. Um, when it comes to, to these videos online, um, I think it's, 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 if you see a video that you think is inappropriate, and you have the option to comment, um, perhaps indeed write and say, well, this is highly inappropriate, and perhaps these animals should not be kept as pets. Um, and, and in that sense, inform the um, uh, the other viewers. Um, and in some cases, you can write to the, uh, the person that posted the video um, and explain in a polite way why you think it's inappropriate. Well, you heard that, listeners. Uh, we now have a scientist telling the UK, telling us that we can well actually in the comments. So, Vincent, thank you so much for being here, no matter how depressing your research is. Uh, yeah, I, I do apologize. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Vincent Nyman and his work with poaching in the modern world, we've linked to more information and his scientific papers on our website, sciencefortheople.ca. Guess what you'll also find on our website? Links to Twitter and Facebook and iTunes. Oh my, you can subscribe to the show. You can follow us. You can leave us a five-star rating and a review so more people subscribe and follow us. Those are great things. We've also got a link to our Patreon if you'd like to throw a few dollars at us and keep our aging computer equipment alive. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 